0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Say Something, a podcast hosted by The Breadcast and Bread Coffee House. Bread Coffee House is a campus ministry and free coffee house at Emory University. At Bread, we believe that stories are so important, and we're always looking for ways to share stories about faith and about life and about our students. This summer, we're using this podcast feed to amplify and highlight the stories of our black students at Emory University. We took last week off, But I'm excited to be back with you today. Today's episode features one of our rising seniors, Stephen Rhodes. Stephen has been involved with Bread for a couple of years now. He was one of our junior leaders last year, and he helps in our student band called Brand, as in Bread Band. I'm excited to share Stephen's stories with you all. He's an incredibly talented person, and I really love Stephen. I hope you all enjoy.
1: So I am Stephen Rhodes. I am a rising senior at Emory University, and I'm a physics major.
0: All right, so tell me about growing up in Florida. I know you grew up in Florida, so tell me about your childhood.
1: Florida was, to me, it was a great place to grow up because there's a lot of flat, open land, open trees that you can explore, and that's exactly what I did. But personally, you know, as a man of color, I like the fact that Florida doesn't sugarcoat who you are, uh, even though it's a good and bad thing. I am a black male child, or was a black male child, with a pretty big bald spot on the side of my head, who had big dreams and in a in a big mouth. So I was treated as if I was uh, that kid, you know, that annoying kid in class or or just treat as if I was different uh, in class. I remember one memory specifically. Uh, I had injured myself in a, in a race in school, and I developed a, a scab after a couple of days. And you know, kids kids would ask me why my scab was a different color than theirs. You know, mine was black because my and so they would just questioned me why I looked different or why I talk different or why you know different things were different, but. I didn't really care as a kid. I would practically live outside in trees and bushes, on roofs, uh, wherever I could climb. I would climb, and if I couldn't climb it, I'd find a way to. So it, it was, it was good and bad, but a lot of good because it taught me uh, who I was.
0: Did you have conversations with your parents at all about race and being black?
1: Yeah, so we actually talked. Uh, it, it, it wasn't like hey, outright conversation, you know. My black parents have an understanding of of. Growing up while black in a a white society and in white spaces, um, which is what I grew up in. You know, I grew up in suburbia basically, and so they knew how to navigate the system of just white society in general, how to get along with other people, how to talk, how to hold their knives correctly, how to you know just little intricacies of speaking, not saying incorrect words or not walking weirdly, you know, not sagging or stuff like that. Just little things that taught us how to walk through our daily lives is how they introduced race to us. They'd warn my my siblings about driving, about getting pulled over, about things like that. But after a certain age, I realized they never really taught me how to be happy with race. It was more of just how to deal with it, and how to overcome like, racism or being treated differently. So they knew how, to, knew how to help me appease those who weren't black, but not how to like, appease myself and my own identity of, uh, and how I think about blackness.
0: So was, in that context, was race primarily a sort of a fear-based thing? I mean, that your, your parents were trying to protect you from something rather than highlight something beautiful?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was both, actually. One distinct memory, the most potent memory I have about blackness is that in terms of beauty and and appreciation, my mom, my mom only, you know, I've never had a conversation really outside of this. I hated the fact that I was, that I looked the way I looked and I made it apparent. And my, one day my mom pulled me aside in front of a mirror, sat me in front of the mirror and told me to repeat, I am beautiful and I love myself. Like hundreds of times um, until I broke into tears. You know, it, it, moments like those are to help me appreciate my blackness, but it ended up just sort of adding more layers to it. Because on one hand, I say to myself something, but then everyone outside, every, all of my friends say another thing. So when I was a kid, it was hard to mix those two and deal with those two.
0: What kind of stuff did other like, kids and other, you know, outside your family say in that way?
1: Like, in terms of of random people I never knew, like, if I was walking to school or something, people who were riding out in their cars, young kids who were stupid, would just ride by, drive by in their trucks and just yell the N word at me and my brother as we walked to school. But in terms of class, you know, nothing like that ever really happened. It was more of, like, subtle things like, Oh, why do you look like that? Or, you know, making fun of something I wore or something that I looked different in. Yeah, no, nothing really blatantly, I um, mean, besides the drive-by inward thing, you know, nothing really blatantly uh, in class or in my friend group. It was always like something undertoned, like this girl won't like you or, you know, they won't accept yours. stuff like that.
0: What was your school like as far as the racial diversity and what was your experience being black in school?
1: Being black in school, it was sort of in elementary school was awesome because I, I loved being the only black kid in the class because I was a jokester. And so that's where I started my pattern of being the sort of black jokester, like story, I don't know, type of guy, because, you know, people would laugh at me inherently whether or not I, I actually said something funny or not. But because I was the only black kid in the class, if I said something mildly funny, people would always laugh at it because of, you know, who I was, the identity that I took on. Um, so it was easy for me to embrace that role of, like, jokester. Teachers, however, hated it. Uh, they, they, they didn't hate me, but they disliked the role that I sort of took on. Because I, I remember in elementary school, we'd always... I'd always have a homeroom class, and as soon as we'd get out of the class, I'd say to the teacher, good riddance, and then I'd run out the door. And I didn't even know what good riddance meant. I just said it because (laughs) I thought it was something funny to say. You know, I'd be a prankster. I'd, like, turn the cameras upside down so they wouldn't see me, like, standing on the backs of my uh, classmates just to do different pranks. And uh, they cut the branches off of the tree that was in the playground just because I kept climbing it. Different stuff I got in trouble for.
0: You're a rebel.
1: Yeah, so much so. I I mean, I got taken out of, of... of uh, regular middle school for homeschooling. That's literally the reason why, because my fifth grade teacher hated me, because I would just prank her and, you know, mess with other kids.
0: In high school, you went to a boarding school, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, tell me about that experience.
1: That was good and bad in its own ways. If I could do it over again, I would not go to a boarding school. I would not send my children to boarding school or anything like that. Just because it taught me really what racism is through just pain and experience. High school was the first time that I really questioned my own worth and my own life's value and it's the only time I started to struggle with you know the decision of the pain is so much should I just end my life. That's the only time high school is the only time I ever thought about that because I was far away from my parents, I was far away from my family and any attempt to contact them, me and my parents already had communication issues we still do to some extent. So they never really understood the pain of that and I never really understood the financial burden they had to go through to put me into boarding school in the first place. So it was a a struggle. I mean kids there they weren't racist but they took advantage of racism because of that system of of power where oh everyone there is, is rich and white and just has complete control of the school academically. You know in class teachers value you more when you perform better they give you more attention when you perform better. I was usually the kid who was shifted to the back of the classroom, uh, just by nature, not by, you know, anyone forcing me back there, but just by nature. I wasn't friends with any of the other kids because of how they hung out. You know, they hang out by spending money. They hang out by spending money at Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, you know, different places. I just didn't have the resources to be able to go to the same spaces and go to the same lengths as they did. So it separated me and, uh, I became friends with, people who are also outcasts within the school. Is it a real friendship? Yes and no. I definitely appreciated those friendships looking back. I'm still friends with some of the guys today, to be specific, one of them. And the other friend I made, I, I call it, you know, just God raining down a friend on me. You know, he had no reason to be a friend with me. We just joked and clowned on each other. He was super popular, you know, varsity soccer. At my school they didn't have football, so anyone who's on the varsity soccer team is considered the the jock or the popular guy with status so he was that guy he was one of those guys but he was he was like a short shorter asian dude and he, he was just my best friend for no reason he had no reason to hang out with me everyone else would everyone else in the school would think i was a creep talk trash about me because i just because of homeschooling i didn't know how to socially interact with girls and guys normally uh, especially during puberty because i liked girls, but I didn't know how to properly express and build a connection with women. So I struggled with that, and so people would call me a creep. This is the booming of social media, so... First time I got on Facebook, I remember distinctly getting cyberbullied, because my... I posted, like, what I thought was a cool photo, and it was, like, one of the trashiest photos I've ever taken in my life that I, I don't have because I deactivated that Facebook. But yeah, like people would comment immediately, like especially some of the guys would comment nasty things like, all right, you need to get off Facebook now or like you need to stop talking or like you look stupid or, you know, it's different stuff like that online and offline. It's like they had no, no fear. They didn't fear the repercussions of uh, bullying me as as they would someone else because I wouldn't tell people. I wouldn't talk to people about it. I, well, that's for two reasons because one, I knew people didn't really care. And what I mean by that is like I, I, I told you this before, uh, Kyle, personally, like my roommates in high school had an addiction saying the N word because they thought it was cool. And I remember mm-hmm. telling my house parents uh, at the time where I lived and he walked into the room. He was like, well, you should um stop saying that and then walked out. And then mm-hmm. I kept saying it and it, it years and months. And so on one hand, I knew that people I didn't tell anyone because I knew that people wouldn't care and i knew that people wouldn't do anything about it and that's what continued this cycle and uh, like the system of power like i just had no influence you know if you're not contributing a tuition uh, if you're not a big donor like for example at my school like people who are big donors at the school get a house named after them admajaya you know bradford I, I you know and some of these students were my classmates like there's a student kid named adam bradford really rich so he just, he's fitting well and got a house named after him and all that stuff. But, you know, the kids who are on financial aid or getting covered in their tuition, you know, their their stories are, are less heard and their voices are muted. Yeah, that's, that's just what happened to me in a, in a, I guess, short summation of it. Uh, it was just a cycle of, of being shunned, and I had to really come to terms with the definition of myself, and I had to really find myself in, in Christ and find myself in... I guess my imagination that Christ gave me.
0: Tell me a little bit more about that. What was that finding yourself in Christ's experience like for you in, in the midst of all of that?
1: It came through. So I was I was I was Christian from birth, uh, and I'm just Christian growing up. You know, it was always in my ear for my parents. So when I I remember I was involved in a certain Christian group on campus with one, my best friend, the the jockey uh, soccer player dude. We were in a, we, yeah, he invited me to his Christian group And we talked about the talked about the Bible Discussed it I found that the more I questioned it The more I questioned and solved questions About myself And about what I wanted Because I would see something that I identified with Within the Bible It'd be like, oh, this person, his named Stephen um, He's the first martyr in the Bible It's like, that's That's what my parents tell me I'm named after You know, stuff like that It's, it's these little things that I identified with and it was also, like, times that I remember feeling the most pain. I lived in a triple my junior year in high school, and I lived on the top of a bunk bed. And I remember, you know, to go to sleep, I would always turn on a fan and stare at the ceiling, at a point in the ceiling, to just get my mind off of my roommates staying up late at night gaming and just yelling the inward. Yeah, I just, I just really try and focus and stare at a point and try to think, what does God have in store for me? What things, what... What concepts in the Bible did I study that week or that month that made me feel like I was more than people told me I was? How do I want to keep seeking this relationship and how do I want to keep connecting? That's just what I would do on a, on a, on a daily basis. And sometimes it was by choice and sometimes it was just like, most of the time it was actually just to get my mind off of the struggles of having to live uh, in, in toxic situations.
0: Tell me a little bit more about, you said you grew up in the church. What was your experience like with faith community and and being black? I mean, was that something that was relevant in your faith community or something that was just an afterthought?
1: Again, it was a white, majority white church. It was called like Metro Church of Christ. The church actually shut down sometime after me and my family started going there because of the main pastor leaving because it was, it was one of those churches that was just conservative white folk, you know, they always want the pastor to dress up in a suit, tie, give a sermon about something, and then go home, you know. My dad was a deacon at the church, so he'd always handle communion. Our involvement, we never talked about race, uh, never addressed it. It was something that was ignored. In fact, you know, people would act like it didn't exist. People would just try and have a couple black deacons there like my dad was that black deacon that they referred to he's like he's one of the good ones you know like uh, something like that just because he knew how to acclimate to the culture because people in his family line taught him how to do the same like how to cut with the right hand you know you hold the knife and the you know like smile even if you don't particularly like someone you still treat them as if they're sort of your your boss at work and you try and respect them and you try to get along. But yeah, we never talked about race. The kids ministry actually, again, never never mentioned anything about it. So I would see things that were very normative relationships within the church and I'd see things like uh, couples with people my age and I'd always separate my mind from from things like that, from occurrences like that. I, I realized early on that I wasn't going to bond well with kids just because of my race and you know my socioeconomic status. I, my life functioned differently, so I didn't really get the chance to bond closely with anyone from church, as well as the church failing. It really gave way to me not really trying to connect deeply with the church, so I, I really didn't. I, I grew up hearing it and being around it, which was helpful, which is the most helpful thing. It's like reading the Bible, hearing the Bible every week, but in terms of social connection, it really didn't serve anything for me.
0: I know you've answered this already a handful of times, but I wanted to just ask about racism and experiences of racism in your life. So other than the things you've already shared, you know, where have you experienced racism in your life?
1: It's, to me, it's like the big R, you know, racism. I, I've experienced it in many ways. It's a tiring topic, but it's an important topic. To me, it's it's super boring because it's, it's, it minimizes things to just pigmentation of your skin when things are so much more than that like one analogy i I created for this was a physics one because light in physics is defined as or just light in general is defined as electromagnetic radiation you know there's a spectrum of wavelengths that define what the human eye can see but if you think about it if we could only see if our eyes can only absorb blue and red wavelengths we'd say the only races were blue and red but we know that's not true, like we can see all types of colors and, and, and skin pigmentations, but it's a limited spectrum. We know there's radiation, there's, there's gamma waves, X-rays, like there's different wavelengths of light that we can't see, that we know exist based on what scientists observe, and you know, because they don't just use what they can see to gather information. They don't just use what's shown and what their eyes pick up to gather information because if they did, you know, tons of scientists and tons of people would die from radiation, from poisoning, all those different types of stuff. But they don't because they observe and they look for facts and they look for clues and they elevate the quality of our world and the efficiency of our society with their observation. I ask myself and I ask other people, why do we not do the same? In my lifetime, I could count on my hand the number of times every year in my life that teachers, store clerks, you know, police officers have used where I fall on in the spectrum of seeable light to gather their information only and not what I am or what I do to gather information and behave accordingly based on that. Racism to me has always been the system of thinking that lacks the context of the spectrum that goes beyond my color, whether it's my pastor from an old church saying he hates rap music or rap culture, or a girl saying to me that she fears black people and refuses to give me a chance, or it's me being pushed to the back of all my classrooms, unaddressed, unengaged, unheard. You know, all my life, I've just wanted to feel understood and loved by at least one person on this earth outside of my immediate family. As a minority that grew up in the majority of all of his life, you know, racism has sort of starved me of either one or the other, love or understanding. In almost every space that I've been in, it wasn't until I gave myself or I understood that Jesus gives me love and understanding that I became more at ease with the fact that racism exists and that I have to walk through life with it.
0: Let's talk about college. You uh, came to Emory a few years ago. What has that transition been like for you now at school coming out of the boarding school experiences you had now in college? What's your experience like with being black at Emory? How would you describe that?
1: Being black at Emory is is it's an interesting thing. Because you, kids in college, it's different than high school. High school it was like, my high school is 400 people total, faculty was like 100, so you'd be able to notice and you'd be able to tell who everyone's name was, who was doing what to who, you know, gossip, you knew everything. Here Emory, you're out of the loop, I'm out of the loop on everything. If you don't go outside of your room, you won't know anything unless you're somehow connected to everyone on social media or something like that. It's a lot more diluted, racism can hide a lot easier it's a lot less blatant, it's a lot more systematic, and I say systematic just as a way to describe like people can take advantage of racism without knowing it, you can take advantage of the system of power without knowing it, and as a black person I can see it, I can see these patterns, often I'm seen as it's for me personally. It's a balance of like involving myself with communities that are conscious of race and conscious of what's what's right and wrong and how to treat a person, how to treat a human being with uh, love and respect. And you know the classroom experience, because the classroom sometimes can be void of that love and respect aspect because people can ignore you, people can debate with you, people can call you, na- you know, different things can happen in the classroom. Uh, thankfully, I've I've never had anything blatant happen to me. I actually personally think, and this is outside of just race, I actually personally think women deal with a lot more in college than men do. And I can just see it. This isn't a personal experience, but I remember having a teacher, chemistry teacher, who only mostly calls on girls, like 90% calls on women, and comments on their looks all the time. Assumes where they're going and who they're going out with, if they're wearing some, like a skirt or something. I've been around men who objectify women. I've been on the other hand of objectifying women, just verbally, not not physically, are those people who who contribute to the statistic of sexual assault, things like that. And I can only imagine what what it's like being a minority and being a woman with that in, within Emory because of the struggles that you have to face. But um, personally, in the, in the black community in Emory, I'm not really involved because. I'm considered different. I remember being involved in an initiative called the Black Male Initiative my freshman and sophomore year. My freshman year, my roommate, he used to sleep with a lot of girls and kick me out when he wanted to. And I didn't know how to respond, so I just left. Uh, so I just, I just listened to him. And so I, we developed a salty relationship after that. So he thought I was a weirdo because I played frisbee, I did all these quote-unquote white things. Him and his friends hated me. Yeah, the only times that we bonded were when we were in Black Male Initiative meetings uh, stuff like that so yeah he hated me and I remember one particular instance I think it was my junior or sophomore year I think it was my sophomore year we were giving an orientation to the freshmen black males and he called me out in a meeting or the president of the group called me out in a meeting because he was best friends with my roommate who kicked me out to sleep with women he I, I remember he's walking around he's like saying oh if you're a black student you can join all these different clubs like you can play all these different sports you can play tennis you can play basketball but if you're a weird N-word, then you can play Frisbee. It it felt like the same ring. You know, the N-word had the same ring. Of course, it sounded cooler because, you know, he was black, but, like, it had the same ring of, like, when a white person said it to me. You know, like, I'm putting you down with this word. If you're a weird N-word, then you can play Frisbee. And I was the only person in the room that played Frisbee. So it felt like a very directed uh, attack to make me feel different which is the same way that white people use it, you know, sometimes to make you feel different, to put you aside. Since then, I stopped my involvement with that group in particular, and that group had particular access to the black community. So most of the black community within that group, in my grade and below, basically, I don't really bond with. I mean, I have, you know, a couple black friends from being involved at a bread like Brian, uh, Boris, Will, you know, people that I'm friendly with, that I know. But outside of, outside of them, for the majority part of my experience at Emory, I've not been connected to black people, not even much black staff, because there's no one in the physics department who is black who can really show me how to manage. You know, people who are black who work in the physics department are usually you know, custodians or people who are, are management of faculty, but they don't teach. They don't know much about physics or how to navigate through the system. So, I mean, maybe it's a problem within me that I don't reach out to more black students, but at the same time, like, it did put a bad taste in my mouth when, you know, I was put on blast in front of the community I considered to be my own safe haven. Uh, So I stopped considering it my own safe haven, and I found another place to go.
0: Well, you know, we're living right now through some wild times. We're living in a global pandemic, and, and on top of that, there's been, I guess now six weeks of protest and and a lot of voices sharing their anger and frustration over police brutality and racism and all these things and i've asked everyone this each week but just how are you feeling in the midst of all of that as a black man
1: i actually contribute you know the current state of america to the reason i lose so much sleep and the reason i lost so much sleep because i i, I stay awake thinking of you stay you stay awake paranoid sometimes you stay awake paranoid like you hear a story about someone's home getting broken into for no reason. It's like that could be anyone, anywhere. You hear about the rising number of violence against Black people, the rising number of opposition that people in power give uh, to Black people, and it's it gives you it gives me fear. I, I should say, I sh- like practically, it should give anyone fear. You know, if it was directed towards any race, but at the same time, it gives me personally fear because I know that people. Trayvon Martin, younger than me, still died because someone thought he was scary and wanted to fight him you know, in my, close by my vicinity, uh, where I live and so those experiences, you start to develop sort of a, I don't want to say PTSD, but sort of a it affects how I dream, so sometimes I don't like to dream sometimes I don't like to sleep, you know, and when I do dream I sweat, I get nervous I try to become conscious of the fact that I'm dreaming so somehow I can escape my own dream. But sometimes I can't, you know, if you've ever had the feeling of dying in your own dream. It's not a it's a weird feeling because when you wake up, you still think or I still thought that I was dead, but mm-hmm. I'm not. And I'm glad that I'm not. And I'm glad that I'm still here. And, i am you know, there are some people who who live those dreams. And, and George Floyd was one of those people who knew he was going to die when he was being knee on and sort of lived this 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 terrible, you know, nightmare in real life. It's unfortunate, but it it's frankly realistic to to be in fear of these things. And COVID going around. I, I personally try to stay inside because, you know, Florida is booming with, with COVID right now. You know, and I see it. I, I sit in the car as my mom goes out shopping. People don't wear masks. <laughs> they don't wear masks. They they touch anything and everything they want to. They keep going to the beer store, the liquor store, fireworks. Everyone's buying fireworks, setting off their own fireworks for 4th of July, having parties, things like that. Like People people think they're above it in Florida because they... I, I don't want to blame it on, on, on whiteness in particular, but with Southern culture, it is a culture of like, we're doing our own thing because we're American and we should be given the freedoms to do so it's just generally just the mindset that they take, like, America, like, all that type of stuff. And so I, I, I try my best to, you know, there are protests happening in Orlando, it's just, it's not safe. Me, personally, I, I the way I try to combat these systems of power is, I, I take it into thought when I design my career. It's like, when I get out of college, how am I going to combat these systems of power? You know, when I move into the world, how am I going to teach other people? How am I going to walk? How am I going to talk? as a man of color to to live my life as a statement that I don't stand for the things that are going on uh, systematically.
0: As you know, we always wrap up all of our storytelling with some Have You Considered questions just as a way for us to now turn our stories back on the listeners and say, here's a few things I want you to take away from this. So, Do you have any Have You Considered questions for us today?
1: Yes. I have uh, three Have You Considered questions. First one is, Have you considered What you would be like if the people you grew up around shared a different worldview about people who are different than them? Have you considered developing deep love and understanding with people different than you? Have you considered actively giving people of color around you an equal amount of time, effort, and opportunity to be loved and understood?